Well, good morning. If you haven't met me yet, I'm Tag Tuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and I invite you now to turn with me either online or on paper to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It's, it's in your bulletin, but it's also on page uh, 389 of the Bible in your row. Uh, today, we're beginning our post-Easter sermon series on, on the, book, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And now, Ezra and Nehemiah originally was sort of one book put together, and over the years, it's gotten chopped into two books. It's in our Bibles. Uh, that's just a little trivia for you. Um, Easter is a season and not merely a day. It's a time when we think about what it means to apply the power of the resurrection to our lives. And so we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah for a story that has a pattern and paradigm of the resurrection in it, okay? So I invite you to stand now for the reading of God's word. Here, Ezra 1, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word, truthful in all it affirms. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go, uh, had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides, all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels all the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us 30, 60, and 100-fold. Amen. You may be seated. First question is, what's at stake when we read Ezra and Nehemiah? What's at stake? Have you ever had a dark moment? Have you ever have a dark moment and come through it and wondered, what's next? What's next? Uh, when I got out of the Air Force, 
Uh, we were in Germany, we were living in Germany, and when I got out, we uh, moved back to the United States. And uh, there was, you know, going from being in the military to being a civilian again after eight years, there was sort of a dark tunnel there. And we found ourselves back in the United States asking, what's next? And maybe for you, there was some time where you've had an initial grief and your life starts over with some, some kind of new normal and you think, what's next? And you might be listening for God's voice. You might be looking to see God do something. But what does it look like? Now, like the people in this passage, people everywhere love to build. But sometimes our circumstances can, can keep us from moving forward. They can keep us from building. Ezra Nehemiah is the, is the what's next builder's book of the Bible. I mean, it's an Old Testament book, so we're not going to, even though it's post-Easter, we're, we're not going to see Jesus in person in this, in this uh, sermon series. There are no uh, big miracles like Moses parting the sea, no, no miracles like Jesus calming the storm. There's a lot of talk, though, about God's word and God's word being written down and how the people want to follow that word that's written there's a lot of opposition in this book, opposition against God's people, and a lot of questions about how to handle that opposition. There are dark tunnels in this book, but there's also a great hope, and that's why this is a really appropriate book to look at in the season of Easter. And I like how the quote on the front of the bulletin uh, puts it. In the story of the exile and return, the story, in other words, of the outpouring of God's judgment followed by the life-restoring power of God's restoration, there lies the pattern and paradigm of the cross and resurrection. You see, you can find resurrection hope in how this story looks forward. So we're gonna meet these two incredible figures who are important in, uh, in Old Testament history. And we're gonna see how God takes uh, two ordinary men and uses them to gather his people, uh, to go and reestablish themselves in the land where they were taken from and to reestablish themselves as a worshiping community in that land. It's a, it's a what's next story. It's a building story. It is not a pull yourselves up by the bootstrap story. But it is a story of God's hand on God's people, stirring them up and moving them forward. The story ends in renewal. It ends in worship and glory to the God, the God who does not give up on his people. So it, it's appropriate for us because Christians must gather and go and build because God's the one who stirs them up. God's the one who does the stirring. So we're gonna look today, starting at this, at this stirring, looking at how the Lord stirs up Cyrus, how the Lord stirs up his people, and how the Lord stirs up people today. So in verses one through four, the Lord stirred up Cyrus. And I know what you're all thinking. Who's Cyrus? He's just not one of those guys that we have many coloring sheets on, right, or that we talk about all that often. But Cyrus was a Persian king. Cyrus was a Persian king who uh, defeated the Babylonian king Nabonidus in 539 BC. So he lived a long, long time ago. He was a Persian king. And he, uh, when he beat Nabonidus, Cyrus inherited everything that Babylon owned, 
And so he could do whatever he wanted with it. And so he decreed in 538 BC that Jewish exiles could return to their land. Is that true? Well, actually, yes, it's absolutely true. This is historical fact. We actually have archaeological evidence that Cyrus was a real person. Uh, there's, a, there's a piece of archaeology called the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, where Cyrus writes on it and he boasts of, of all the holy cities beyond the Tigris, the river, whose sanctuaries had been in ruins over a long period, I returned to their places. There's a real person, he really did this. And this was kind of, the, this was kind of what ancient cultures and ancient people did uh, to, in order to, to build a kingdom and to keep a kingdom. What they might do is, if I conquered you people and I conquered you people, I, may, I might make some of you people move over to where these people live and some of these people move over to where these people live and that way you all have to mix it up and none of you can quite band together and defend your homeland or defend your homeland. Uh, when I move you around by my decree, uh, it becomes... Well, not really our homeland, but it becomes my homeland since I'm the king. And that's a very common ancient practice. And Cyrus is kind of doing that, but it's a, it seems a little odd to us that Cyrus says, well, hey, you guys got taken out of the land and put over here. It's okay for you to go back to your homeland and build your temples up again. He's got a plan in there. Now, Cyrus may think that it's his own kingdom that he's building, but the Bible is going to tell the story differently. Uh, Cyrus says two things in verse two. First, he says, uh, he says the Lord, or Yahweh, he uses the divine name. When you, when you see uh, the Lord in all capital letters like that, uh, it's, it's, God's, it's the name of the God of Israel that's being spoken of there. So he knows him by name. Yahweh, the God of heaven, which is a more general term, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Cyrus is saying, God gave me everything. No matter who your God is, God gave me everything. And God charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, in Judah, which seems, which seems at first like he has a, a soft heart toward Israel's God. Seems like he has a soft heart towards Israel's people. Now the question is, why did God stir up Cyrus to do this? Now, that's where we have to look at verse 1. The why is right there. God stirred up Cyrus that the word of the Lord by Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And again, you might be going, I'm a little fuzzy on, on the history here. What's going on? Where, where is this part in Jeremiah? Why doesn't, why doesn't the author of this book tell us where in Jeremiah he says this? He, he's not very good. He didn't, put a, he didn't put a footnote there for us. Well, for the original readers, he wouldn't have had to put a footnote for God's people who first read this story, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew exactly what was being talked about. In Jeremiah chapter 25 and in Jeremiah chapter 29, God promises through the prophet Jeremiah that after 70 years of exile, 70 years being taken out of their land, uh, Babylon will be defeated and God will bring the Israelite people back to the Israelite land. Now, Cyrus makes one mistake in all of this, and his mistake is in verse three. He refers to the Lord as what? He refers to him as the God who is in Jerusalem, as, as if in Jerusalem is the only place where that God has his power. Now, this was another feature of, of ancient of ancient warfare, of ancient uh, conquering that goes back and forth. 
In ancient times, people saw gods as local entities. You people in this town and this place had your God. You people in this town and your place had your God. And if we happened to go to war against each other, it was your gods versus their gods. And whoever's God was stronger was the God who won. If, you're, if you guys won against those guys, it must mean that your God is stronger. And if you guys won, and since the Israelites' gods seemed to have lost 70 years ago and been taken out of Jerusalem, well, maybe we need to Put him back in Jerusalem. At least there he's got a little bit of power. He's a local God. All gods were local. I have to ask you this question as I was thinking about this. Have you ever thought, have you ever, uh, you know, you might think that these are ancient people and they do these things, that, you know, like how silly, what a, what a silly way to think about God. But have you ever wondered if your God was just local? And this is what I mean. That God is the God over this person or this place or this thing, but he's not really the God over all things. Sometimes it can seem to us like uh, when we're in this room, God is really present when we sing and we pray and we preach. But on Tuesday afternoon when I'm alone in my car or I'm at work or I'm with a, that family member or that friend, it doesn't feel like God is God there. Don't make the mistake of Cyrus. Don't make the mistake of Cyrus. God is God over all. He's not local to this building, this city, even this country. He's the God over all things, the entire world, the entire universe. There's another question I want you to just think about, consider. Do you think that God would ever stir someone up in your life in order for you to be able to see his goodness. You get it? King Cyrus was not an Israelite. He was not a Jew. He, he paid some lip service to the God of the Israelites, but he wasn't, he, he wasn't really one who's following that God. And yet, God stirred that pagan king up in order to do good to his own people. Are there unbelieving people in your life or if you're an unbelieving person, have you ever sensed God stirring you up to do something good to his people, to do good to another Christian? Uh, an unbelieving friend or coworker shows you kindness. Someone, someone who you see as hostile to the faith actually respects it when they see you pray. Uh, a boss maybe gives you a day off in order to participate in a church event. They know that that day is, is holy to you. What should our response be when God stirs someone up on our behalf? If God stirs someone up on our behalf, what is the, what's the proper response? The answer in verse four of this passage is worship. Worship, right? Uh, the, what it says there is take this assistance that is being given to you and go build God's house. Take this assistance and go build God's house. Don't just go back and spend it on yourself. This isn't, just a, this, this isn't coming to you just to do whatever you want with it. This is coming to you to go and put the place of worship back in order and worship your God there. Oh, little did Cyrus know what would happen if they did that. 
Now, the other thing is this moment harkens back. It, it should be a little bit, it, it could be a little bit familiar to us because it feels a little bit like the Exodus. The Exodus, right, was that uh, part at the, at the very beginning of the Old Testament where God's people left Egypt in order to go to the promised land. And when they did that, to, how did they leave Egypt? They didn't fight. God actually sent plagues on the Egyptians, and the Egyptians uh, eventually were like, man, we can't get you guys out of here fast enough. And then uh, in, the, in the Exodus story, God says, and ask the Egyptians for stuff. And they said, hey, the Israelites, God's people said, well, uh, can we have some stuff? And they were like, sure, what do you need? Right? And, it, and the Bible says that in doing this, in asking the Egyptians for stuff, so God's people plundered the Egyptians and sent them out of the land. And now, generations later, God's people are leaving Babylon in order to go back to the promised land. They're going back uh, and, and uh, they're going with assistance. They're going with real material aid. They're going with gold and silver and clothes and, and free will offerings. And the purpose for God's people in the Exodus and here was to go to a place and worship God. Right? Do you remember that, that great interchange between Moses and God where Moses is getting ready to lead the people and he says, God, how do I know that you're gonna do what you said you're gonna do? And God said, oh, you'll know. This is how you'll know. When you're standing here worshiping me on this mountain, you'll know that I've done what I said I was gonna do. The promise of God's deliverance is that at the end of it, you'll be worshiping him. And so it is here. They're gonna leave Babylon and go back and they'll know that they've been successful when they're worshiping the Lord in his place. So I want you to think about this if you're in a what's next moment of your life like the Israelites were. They had come through this dark time. They're moving back to their place. What's next? When you're in a what's next place, are you moving toward a place of worship? Are you moving back to whether it's corporate worship, whether it's you know, private worship, individual devotional worship, whether it's a meeting with a group of people to pray or to study God's word, to come and be a part of an education hour or a Bible study somewhere else, are you being moved toward worship when you find yourself asking, what's next? And are you looking around to see how God may be giving you assistance? And if you see the assistance that's coming from him, does that motivate you to move toward him in worship? So God not only stirs up Cyrus, but God also stirs up his own people. Uh, there in verses five and six, God gives aid to his people so they can go worship him. God keeps his promise. At the end of 70 years, the people are gonna return to the land of Israel. But now remind me again, you might think, what was that exile and why was it such a big deal? Remember, we were just talking about after God brought his people out of Egypt to the promised land, he established them. And at every step in the journey, God gave his people different leaders who, uh, who said things like, God has not let one word of his promise fail. God, even along that part of the journey, he gives the people earthly kings when they ask for it. God's people went from uh, basically a church plant that met in a traveling tent called the tabernacle to a permanent location called the temple, which was the sign of God's presence in the midst of his people in Jerusalem. But in that permanent building, 
With those kings that they had wanted so badly, God's people forgot about God's character. They forgot about God's goodness toward them. They they thought God gave them the land so that now they could do whatever they wanted in it. They thought that being the chosen people, the chosen people who had the right God, the right worship, they could choose to live in the land in whatever way they deemed was right. But God warned them, you're forgetting me. He sent prophet after prophet, and the prophets told the truth. They were creative. In moments, they were kind, uh, but they told, they told the real truth. They told the hard truth. There were even moments where they were good and angry, but God's people for generations did not listen. And the final warning came true, and God sent the Assyrians to destroy half of all his people, and then he sent the Babylonians to take care of the rest. And that's the exile. The Assyrians come in, then the Babylonians come in, the people are taken captive, and they're dragged with fish hooks in their mouths from Israel all the way to Babylon across the desert. The exile was like a death, it was a dark tunnel for God's people. God's wrath against their sin had begun to be poured out on them. But now, in this moment, in this story, that time is over. After 70 years, God has promised this return. And this stirring up of Cyrus, in this stirring up of Cyrus, it's about to come true. But now, I want you to just imagine. Imagine that you are one of God's people who was born in the exile. You don't remember being taken from Israel into Babylon, but you were born in Babylon. But you'd been told your whole life the story of God's people living in this land that God had given them, a a free land of Israel where God's temple was supposed to be, but that temple had been burned down so long ago. And then one day in Babylon, mom and dad wake up and they say, well, it's time. It's time to go back to Israel. It's time to rebuild the temple. Pack your things. Let's go. Are you ready to jump up and go? Maybe. Maybe not. Is worship in Israel that important? Can't we just stay here and worship God? It seems like we've started to make a life here in Babylon. If God didn't save us from the Babylonians 70 years ago, what is he not able to save us from now? Has he gotten stronger in 70 years? You see, it would be easy for them to let the present circumstance keep them from going back, keep them from moving forward. Now, on the other hand, imagine this. Imagine people who want to go back, and they they remember, and they want to go back and find the glory days. Let's go back to the old Jerusalem. Let's go back to the way things were before. But then you ask yourself this question, could those things ever really be the way they were before? Can you go back to it? Actually, maybe maybe we should rethink it. Going back might be too good to be true. Maybe we should just cut our losses and just stay where we're at. Have you ever felt like that? If you've gone through a dark tunnel, have you ever been tempted to let your circumstances hold you in place? You're just on the other side of some grief and you're asking, what's next? Sometimes you take a look around, you see what's around you and you say, I think I just wanna stay put. But in verse five, God does something different. 
he stirs up the leaders of his people. He stirs up the heads of the households. He stirs up the worship leaders, the priests. He stirs up the teachers, the Levites. He stirs up the practical folks, the builders. And he gives them everything that they possibly need. He gives them silver and gold and costly wares. God does not build back cheap. Cyrus, in verses 7 8, even gives back all the stuff that had been stolen from the original temple. He had a record of it. And that's something you're going to see in this book a lot of. Just like at the very beginning, we had Cyrus's, uh, Cyrus's edict. That was a, a, you know, a record, an archaeological record. Now we've got all this list of things. It's one of those weird Bible lists of things that aren't very important to us. But I guarantee to the first people who read this, it was a very important list. So if you're a list keeper, good on you. If God stirred those people up and they went and they didn't let their circumstances hold them back, they didn't try and cut their losses and just stay in place, well, then we have to ask, what about people today? Does God stir up people today? Yes. Yes. The Lord stirs up people today. What, what does it look like? Does it, does it see like anything that we see? Does it, is it like anything that we see in this story? Sometimes, I, I know this happens because it, it happens to me at times, sometimes the Bible can seem like a sort of imaginary story about these imaginary people because the culture described there seems so different than ours. But look at this. Here you've got a government that's not completely hostile to God's people and that's because God is at work even in a secular government. God is the one who does the stirring and then we see a list of people in chapter two. It's a long list of people. It's a long list of names that none of us can really pronounce properly. But maybe those people aren't so different from us. It's possible. People who have come out of a dark tunnel. People who are looking for God. People who have hopes and dreams for themselves and for their children and for their community. People who have stories of surviving great pain. People who are generous, you can see it there in chapter 2, verse 69. 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver. I didn't do all the math, but uh, in short, it's a lot. It was a, big, it was a big capital campaign. And people gave according to their ability. So is it far-fetched for us to believe that if God stirred them, that he might also stir us? You know, uh, Stu has showed me uh, some pictures of Old Zion. Uh, not just Old Zion uh, when it was Cove Prez and we were at 9th and D back in those days, but even, even before any of us were around and there was an even older congregation called Zion, uh, you know, in, in, this, in this city, and even uh, and another congregation that was an RCA congregation in Firth that eventually came together and made uh, what we now know as Zion. I've looked at those old pictures and we even have, uh, you know, you think these record books are, are weird and funny. We have some old record books from the old Zion. Uh, once in a while, we get a phone call from people asking about their family's membership or a baptism at the old Zion. And we have other records. We have, and we have plans for this building that are still rolled up in a closet. You know what these things remind me of, these pictures and these records? They remind me that God stirs his people 
to gather them, to send them, that they would go and build, and they would go and build not for themselves, they would go and build so that they could worship him together and to know him in worship. So if you're here today, whether it's, whether it's the first time you've ever visited or whether it's your 40th year, uh, you're part of a story of God stirring up his people to worship him. I keep saying this, worship him, worship him. Why is the worship so important? Why is worshiping in community so important? Because worship is how God forms his people. It, worship is what sets God's people up to know him and to live as people who know his character. So, you know, just like any other relationship, how do you get to know someone? Well, you, you go to their house, you sit down with them, you, you talk with them, you interact, you, you interact with their friends, you find out what they like, and you find out the things that they don't like, and you, you, know, you, you understand something about who they are. How do you get to know God? You listen to him, and you talk to him in prayer. You come to his house, you interact with his people, whether it's the living people that you see you know, on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or in Sunday school or whether, or whether it's the saints who have gone on that you interact with through reading his word. What we know now that the people in this story didn't know then is just how far God is willing to go so that we can know him. The temple was always supposed to be a sign of God's presence on earth. It was supposed to be a place of safety and joy for his people. And we're gonna see in this book how worship is not just something that happens in the temple, but worship is an all-of-life kind of thing. So you're gonna have to stick around and listen to the rest of the sermon series. But it's not clear yet in these opening chapters, but this story is pointing us forward to an even clearer sign of God's presence on earth. When God himself comes and puts on sandals and walks on earth, the greatest revelation of God on earth, of course, is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And God himself was willing to go through the dark tunnel of humanity the darkest tunnel, he was willing to walk through the pain of life all the way to the death on the cross and take the wrath that he poured out on himself, the wrath for the sin that we deserve. And when Jesus rose again on the third day, he did that in order to begin the ultimate building project, the church. The church, a people gathered from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation of earth. Every, uh, every place, even way back here in this book, God is pointing us forward to his greatest work. Now look, I realize it's day one in the book of Ezra and we haven't even heard Ezra's name yet, so you're gonna have to wait for it. You got Nehemiah's name there in chapter two, verse two, and while these guys are important, the most important part of this story is how we will see God stir up all his people and cause them to build, not for themselves, but build so they can know him through worship. Cyrus was our unlikely hero. He thought he was building his own kingdom, but he's actually being part of building a kingdom that will outlast the, Assyrian, or the Persian kingdom and any kingdom that comes after it or came before it. The people of God could have stood still. They could have let their circumstances keep them from building. But they were all stirred up by God's spirit, stirred up for the work of rebuilding. Is God using his word to stir you up today? When you see this pattern of resurrection of a people coming back to life again, when you see the promise of resurrection fulfilled in Christ at Easter, do you know, do you know 
And I want you to think about this this week, that that power is available to you, not just on Sunday morning, but on Tuesday afternoon, on Friday night. And it may not make your life comfortable uh, like the American dream. You may still have moments of doubt and wonder about your circumstances, but in Christ, God has connected you to a much bigger story than you could possibly imagine. And being in Christ, I promise, turns out for your good. Let's pray. Oh God, you've given us this record of your people who gathered to go and build so they could worship you. Would you give us that same stirring that you gave them so that our lives may be built up in Christ and so that we can worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.